So <clears throat> for the last 10 years or so, I've been director of palliative care and pain management at our Mount Sinai affiliate hospital just outside of New York City called Englewood Hospital and Medical Center. Uh, it's a teaching facility, fairly busy tertiary care uh, center. Uh, and when I decided to start up the palliative care program, I really had no idea what I was getting into. You know, palliative care is one of the fastest growing segments in medicine. Very interesting. A lot of clinicians are kind of changing career paths and, and finding the passion to help patients when they, uh, when they near end of life. And when I uh, was chatting with the Pain Week folks last year, I said, you know, Pain Week doesn't really have very much focus on end-of-life issues and pulse and things like that. And we really should start to incorporate into the curriculum some concepts of palliative care and pulse. So this is one of the ways that we're, uh, that we're doing it. So I thank you guys all so much for, uh, uh, for coming. I'm a pain doctor by training. I should say I'm an anesthesiologist by training, but I haven't done anesthesia in 20 or 30 years. Uh, although part of what I do every day is medication management, obviously, so my anesthesia training came in helpful there. Still do some injections in spinals and epidurals. Um, trained up at Yale uh, in anesthesia and pain. Took a little bit of a left-hand turn through a moonlighting job at an addiction clinic to run an addiction treatment center. And uh, wouldn't you know, I was in the right place at the right time 20 years ago when this whole interface between pain and addiction kind of reared its ugly head. And we realized that in the right setting, opioids used appropriately are miraculous drugs for certain patients. But in the wrong setting, when used inappropriately, they could be deadly drugs for some people. Uh, so I've been uh, a, a pretty avid uh, speaker out there on the circuit for promoting opioid safe use, but promoting opioid use, especially in the right setting, which we'll talk a little bit more about uh, uh, this morning. Um, then my final board certification was palliative care uh, training. And then a couple of years ago, I was crazy enough to go uh, take the uh, acupuncture for physicians course. Any other acupuncturists in the room? It's a crazy, I was going to say science, it's a crazy discipline, right? Your kidney's down here, your liver's over here. I mean, nothing makes sense. It's a science unto itself. Don't ask me why. I have patients who just are, what it does for them is amazing. Breaking the skin barrier with a little metallic conductive needle and twirling it around does some things for people. Now, it doesn't work for everyone, but for the people that it works for, it's truly amazing. And I, believe it or not, I've been doing it for palliative patients in the, in the hospital as well. Great for nausea, some shortness of breath points. Uh, so we'll talk a little bit about that if we can. Uh, being academically trained and, uh, and uh, many of the companies appreciating my speaking style, I'm asked by a lot of the pharma companies who promote medical education to do talks, and you see up there my uh, disclaimers as far as speaking and, and, uh, and research goes. So this program today, we could talk, we could take it in any direction that you guys want. You could read the slides. It's basically the nuts and bolts of the POLST program. Um, some of your states call it MOST or MOLST or POST. In New Jersey, we happen to call it POLST, and I'm going to explain to you a little bit about where it came from, how we fill it out, and how I found that even in my everyday pain management practice, this one green sheet has probably changed the lives of hundreds or thousands of patients already. I talk to every single patient about, hey, it, it, you'll see in a minute these things were meant for, if you think your patient is in their final year of life and they have their wits, maybe it's time to think about pulsed. Unlike an advanced directive, which we do now when we're young and healthy, think about what we would want. I've been using this almost as kind of a blurred middle ground to get patients who have nothing, no advanced directive, no pulse, in their 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s to think about what would they want if and when the time come they had to make difficult medical decisions. So 
a little factoid, all patients eventually die. That's all from, I mean, I hit the literature. I mean, I couldn't find anything that says otherwise. It, it appears that everybody, everybody dies. That's, you know, the unfortunate uh, reality. Uh, but, and I'll tell you, I'm not proud of it, but New Jersey is number one in the country leading the list of spenders on end-of-life care. Every time I walk through my ICU, I think of that statistic. I mean, we see people just languishing there for weeks and weeks and weeks even terminal cancers, no hope of survival at all, beyond all types of treatment, and yet between the family and the ICU team, they just can't come to the decision of terminal extubation or uh, terminal sedation, which is okay. We don't force them there, but it's why Medicare alone spent $50 billion on the final two months of life. I found the statistics. It's more than the budget of the Homeland Security Department or the Department of Education, the last two months of life. And if you've ever been in the ICU, I'm sure that's the reason you guys are all here. You know those last two lives are not peaceful and quiet lives. Those are lives where you're usually mechanically ventilated, uh, usually on multiple drips, having your IV lines changed in and out, your Foley catheter changed in and out, sometimes your arms and legs restrained to the side of the bed. These, this is not a, uh, a, pleasant, a pleasant end of life, yet very expensive. So in New Jersey, we call them pulsed. Uh, again, your states may be a little bit different. Most states have this now. Uh, it was signed into law in 2011. It stands for Practitioner Orders for Life-Sustaining Treatments. I'll show it to you in a moment. It's a single-page order form. I've been trying to work with the folks in the state to get this electronic. You're going to see this ugly green sheet. It's supposed to go on the patient's refrigerator. In 2016, we should have some electronic version, some bracelet, some implant, some database, where I know some states have started that already, uh, to, uh, uh, to be able to communicate these better than hanging on the refrigerator in your, uh, in your house. Uh, it addresses things like, do you ever want to come back to the hospital, like for patients who've been in five, six, seven times? Uh, artificial nutrition, how much care do you want? And things like the code status. Um, and we used to have this thing called an out-of-hospital DNR form, and the pulse replaced that. Now, one thing you need to know about a pulse, it's a medical order. And that medical order stays with the patient wherever they go. Unlike the DNR, if you guys work in a hospital setting, you know when they come in, you sign the DNR. They go home, they come back in, you need another DNR. They go to the nursing home, you need a DNR. They come back in the hospital, you need a DNR. Every time they come in, it's not a, an enduring order. It doesn't stay with the patient. Unlike the pulse, this thing travels with them. The EMS have been trained on pulse. The emergency rooms have been trained on pulse. Most of the clinicians have been trained on pulse. I can tell you in our hospital, we've had a couple of grand rounds and really try to blast this out using our email system to let doctors know when they see this green form in the chart, these are medical orders required to be followed by the state of New Jersey. Uh, I'm going to show you what some of the components to them are right now. So this began back in Oregon in the 1990s. It was originally for nursing home residents who were in that scenario that I just mentioned going back and forth to the hospital, having to have these do not resuscitate orders uh, written uh, each and every time. Uh, and studies, even recent studies, show, show that Pulse is effective in providing care. And again, like I said, I've showed it to so many patients at this point. They say, Doc, you know what? Such a good idea. We think about it now while we can. You know, and when a couple, when we have a husband and wife, one of them will always say, I know she doesn't want to talk about it, but I want to talk about it hey, this is what I want and this is what I don't want. It helps start that, start that conversation. I mentioned before <clears throat> the original intention of Pulse was 
to think about patients entering their final years of life. Sometimes I find it more difficult to have the conversation with that older patient uh, in the uh, end of life. Um, if you have advanced illness, uh, you wouldn't be surprised if the patient died within a year. Uh, and clearly this helps them define and make clear their preferences for care. So it gets a little bit confusing, and I'll tell you in just a moment why the lines blur for me as well between an advanced directive and a pulsed form. But this is, uh, this is from the state of California. All adults, any age, you make your will, you go to the lawyer, you should have an, an advanced directive. This is what I want, who I want my health care proxy to be if I can't make any medical decisions. Uh, this is how I feel about mechanical intubation, ventilation, uh, uh, CPR, feeding, those kind of things. And the trouble with advanced directives is they appoint a proxy. So if mom, when she's 50, makes an advanced directive that says, listen, I don't want CPR, I don't want feeding, I don't want uh, antibiotics end of life if I have the intractable, incurable illness, I just want to die peacefully. If I can't make decisions, my son Jack is, has now full power of attorney to make decisions. Jack comes to the hospital, sees mom unresponsive in the ICU, I want everything done. Where do mom's wishes go? Out the window, right? And this is, these, are, these are some of the challenges and, and ethical issues we deal with almost every day. So we're supposed to have an advanced directive. Not many uh, Americans do. You can update that periodically. Then at some point as we get older, you're diagnosed with advanced illness or frailty. That's when the state suggests that you fill out a pulsed form. The advanced directive could be a 20-plus page document full of legal ease, hard to interpret. Imagine if you're an EMS worker and you get to the house of a 90-year-old patient with dyspnea and the family member says, wait, 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 here's the advanced directive. You better not do anything until you read this. You know what the EMS guy says? I'm not reading that. I'm not a lawyer. I don't have time to read that. My first goal is the patient and they treat the patient including sometimes mechanical ventilation, when it's against the advanced directives. That's some challenges come in there. The pulse really defines it well, and EMS knows, I'll show you in a second, it's a very simple form, five or six segments to read. You could kind of look at it in just a snapshot and in, in a couple of seconds have an idea. Patients complete the pulse form, um, and then they, uh, they can always update that pulse form as their health status changes. I tell patients, whether it's your advanced directive or your pulse, you can always make changes. Not, if you say here, I don't want CPR, but next month, next year, or when you're diagnosed with a terminal illness, you change your mind, you can always have, uh, you can always change your preferences and have your honors wishes, your uh, wishes honored. Okay. A couple things to make this a legal document. It has to be signed by a nurse practitioner or a physician. The consent could be signed by the patient or their surrogate decision maker. So if someone is that elderly and frail and they've already assigned a proxy, a decision maker, they could sign that, but it has to, it's an order. It has to be signed by a physician or a clinician. Question in the back? Good question. Nope. As long as it's signed by a licensed practitioner, it doesn't have to be a member of your, of your group. Um, it can't be completed by the social workers or the case managers on the floor, the nurse, their lawyers, or other members of the healthcare team, right? Because this is an order. It has to be done by an ordering 
uh, clinician. They are certainly actionable and they travel to patients wherever they go. Home, hospice, hospital, nursing facility, office, wherever they are. It's portable across all settings and it's not meant to compete with the advanced directives, which I've seen already, believe it or not. Uh, then what do you do? Advanced directives say do everything, pulse form says do nothing. Now we have to figure out, you know, what does mom or dad really, really want? It comes on this bright green paper. Uh, sorry, let me go back one. Uh, and like I said, it's law in, uh, in, men, in many states already. I found this little chart, the differences between pulsed and advanced directives. A uh, physician completes the pulse, a patient or a lawyer can do your advanced directive. Advanced directives is something we do now, thinks about future care. Pulsed is really what's coming up in this next you know, year or two time frame. Pulsed was meant for the seriously ill, but I told you I modified that already. 50, 60, 70, 80 in my practice, you're getting a green form. Even if you don't hand it back to me, take it home, talk to your family members about it. I want you to start to think about what should, and we want to honor your wishes. That's what this is all about. Just start to think about what do you personally want if you're ever in that setting or when you're in the setting of having to make some very difficult medical decisions. Um, it's the provider's responsibility to update the form, unlike the advanced, uh, advanced directives. Uh, the healthcare agent or the surrogate could certainly help with the, with the pulse form. And like I said before, in an emergency situation, you come into the ER, the ER doc will scan your advanced directive and see if there's something that stands out at them like do not intubate or no CPR. But they're not reading your 20 or 25 page legal advanced directive if, uh, if they don't have the time to do that. But the pulse you'll see is an order form that must be honored. Now, it took us a little time to get through to the ED docs, but I think between us and the EMS folks, they saw enough of the green forms that they said, hey, you know what? We've actually incorporated it into our order sets. We use McKesson. Uh, a lot of people use Epic, and we're moving to different, different systems. But we've found a way to scan it, get it into the medical order so that as soon as you open the order page, you see that there's a pulse there, and you get to see what the, uh, what the uh, rules of the pulse are. Uh, if the patient has it, it will be honored. Copy the original one, put it on the chart. Uh, a, copy of, a copy of the pulse goes on the chart. The original goes back to the patient. Often what happens is the patient's staying in the hospital. There's nobody to take it. We put that in the chart also. I see the green forms there all the time. And upon discharge, that goes back to the patient and goes back, uh, goes back home with them. If the patient or their surrogate want to make a change in the pulse, they draw a line through the section, they write void. What I've been doing is getting them a new green form so it's clean and neat and people don't have to look at what the crossouts are and uh, what they want and what they don't want. All right. Uh, this for me, again, I've said it a couple times, but it really has made a difference. We, we, we start to have the end of life discussion when patients are able to have that discussion. And I always turn it back, look, we just want what you want. You're not dying anytime soon, but when that time comes, we want to honor your wishes. And it really makes it a, more of a comfortable conversation than, hey, look, you're probably going to die. Tell us what you want to do, right? I mean, that's not what this is for. This is, hey, this is about you. We don't want your kids or your grandkids fighting over, you know, whether you want artificial feeding or to be kept alive. We want you to make that, we want you to make that decision. It helps establish goals of care and obviously opens the lines of, of communication for, uh, for treatment. 
All right, so here's what our form looks like. I know it's a little bit uh, a little bit blurry. You could find these uh, you could find these online. Uh, six sections A through F. Uh, patient's name and date of birth goes up here, and there's only one box that doesn't have check marks to make it really easy, and it's the top box. And the top box is goals of care. And by the way, on the back side, instructions for completing each individual section. So the goals of care in here. The patients always say, well, what am I supposed to write in there? I say, well, you can look, at it, look on the back for some ideas, but what are your goals of care? I want to live forever. Well, that's not a realistic goal of care. I want to live until my son's wedding. I want to see my kids graduate school. I don't want any pain when I die, right? I hate nausea. Control my nausea, and I don't care when I go. You know, like that some patients have different, different ideas about what the quality of life would be at, at end of life. This one says medical interventions, full, limited, or symptom treatment only. This one says fluids and nutrition. This one says CPR and airway management. Patient or the surrogate sign with their phone number on here, and the clinician signs at the bottom. So outside the signatures, there's one, two, three real sections of check boxes that we have patients complete. You see how you could scan this form in a couple of seconds and have an idea what the patient's wishes are. That's why this has made such a difference in end-of-life health care for the patients who have, who have indeed adopted it. So we don't need to belabor it just to go through the sections that we talked about. Uh, what are the specific goals? That This is the free form one. Longevity, cure, remission, a better quality of life, attend a family event, live without pain, I want to garden, enjoy my grandchildren. Um, and obviously they need an honest assessment of your prognosis to be able to put that in, right? If their kids are, if their grandkids are 10 years old and they, they want to live till the wedding, it's not so realistic if they have a terminal disease. So you need to kind of fill them in on their, on their prognosis. Section B is just some check boxes. Do you want full treatment, limited treatment, or symptom treatment only? This takes some explanation to the patient. Well, tell me a little bit about each one of these. And by the way, we didn't even talk about this, and I've yet to do it. But apparently, in the last year or two, the AMA has put out a CPT code for end-of-life discussions. Anybody billing that in the office already? So this is a reimbursable service to healthcare providers, sitting having the end-of-life discussion, talking about pulsed advanced directives as well. I have a feeling that's going to light the fuse under our primary care docs out there who are really struggling with reimbursements to say, hey, all I have to do is talk five or ten minutes about this stuff, and we'll make an extra 20, 30, 40 bucks, or whatever it is. Uh, so I'm glad that they, that they finally did that. Um, full, limited, or symptom treatment only. Uh, under limited treatment, there's a section about do not hospitalize. Uh, symptom treatment only examples. IV medicines can be given for comfort. Uh, they can have CPAP or BiPAP for, to help them breathing. And, and this is what I tell people. Comfort measures will always be provided. Don't worry. None of these choices don't include comfort measures. Every one of these includes, includes comfort measures. Full treatment is exactly what it sounds like. Limited treatment is where patients need to kind of identify a bit more, hey, I want CPR, but only for 10 or 15 minutes, right? Or I'll take CPR and ventilation, but after a week, if I'm not better, I want terminal extubation. And these are things that we need to explain to them what they are. Section C is fluids and nutrition, either always, Never, or let's define what feeding and nutrition is going to look like. Some people say, hey, 
I'll take that little tiny pediatric uh, NG tube when we explain it to them and feed me for a couple days or a week or two. But if I'm not showing any meaningful improvement, I don't want a feeding tube nursing home and two or three years of languishing without a, without a quality of life. Uh, again, take some of our education to, uh, to let them know. Um, and we also tell them, look, if your mouth opens and you want liquids or food, you're always going to get them. Now, clearly, if they have swallowing issues, we're not going to give them big chunks of steak. But if you're hungry, you'll always get food, whether it's Boost or Ensure or, or some uh, thick, thickened supplement. Uh, so we'll never withhold oral. This has to do with full, uh, full feeding. Uh, this is always a sensitive topic to talk to healthy patients about. Um, and I've heard clinicians do it in different ways. There is the warm, caring, and subtle way. And there's the, listen, if you want, we could smash on your chest and break your ribs to try to keep your heart going, right? But that choice is up to you, right? You, you know, we hear these things all the time. And, you know, we're humans, so you gotta, you, you gotta put it in a light that people can understand. Listen, we all die. Eventually, your heart's going to stop. If that happens, we can try to keep it going, things like manual chest compressions and putting in a breathing tube and sending you to the intensive care unit. And some people say, no, I would never want that. And, and other people say, yeah, sure, I, I want that. But if you think in a couple of days that I'm not, not going to survive, I don't want to be in the intensive care unit for months and months. But that's what's happening right now because we don't have these order sets defined. That's why we're spending so much money on this problem and, and basically torturing patients uh, at end of life. There are these things called uh, DNA, DNAR, do not attempt resuscitation, and they call these A and D, allow natural death. And a lot of patients opt for that, especially the cancer patients. Cancer patients like, look, just want to die naturally. When the time comes, I want to be surrounded by my family, right? I know this is not curable, but I tell you, even in our own ICU, end-stage cancer patients on ventilators for weeks and weeks, feeding tubes, pressure sores, I mean, it's just... It's, there's no dignity in that. I think we need to change our, change our thinking about how we, how we treat these patients. There's a section that talks about airway management. Now look, obviously if you're going to have your patients fill this out, you need to be a little bit fluent in what the choices are and what they mean. And you could certainly uh, learn all of those things. All right, they get to uh, appoint a surrogate, just like their advanced directives. If I lose my decision-making capacity, I authorize whoever I list below to modify or revoke the pulsed orders with my treating physician. And this is where we've had in the hospital between advanced directives and pulsed a little controversy because mom or dad say, I don't want to be fed artificially on this form. Their advanced directive says, I don't want to be fed artificially. Now mom is wasting away with dementia at 94, 95 years old. She's been in the hospital six weeks. And we say, okay, listen, we'd like to transfer her to a hospice facility. Hospice? No, no, that means she's going to die. Well, yeah, that means she's going to die because she hasn't been able to eat. She's not taking in enough calories. And now the son or the daughter says, I can't kill my mother. I can't starve her. Right? Go ahead and put that feeding tube in. And there goes the feeding tube to the nursing home, back with the pressure sores, back with aspiration, back with, you know, back for that last six or eight months of prolonged life, if that's what we call it, but against what mom's wishes were. So we try to have these conversations with family members, with the surrogate, but remember, that surrogate gets to change the rules. They get to make the new decision now. Uh, so I think 
the next round of this is um, trying to convince family members to abide by the family by the family wishes, which is not always not always so easy. So uh, so easy. Um, I've discussed this with my physician or advanced practice nurse, signed by the patient um, or their uh, their proxy. Uh, there's a section in, in New Jersey that asks if the person's made an anatomical gift. Uh, and then before the physician signs, it says, these orders are consistent with the patient's medical conditions, known preferences, and best known information. The doctor or nurse practitioner has to print their name and phone number, sign it, date, and time it, just like any other medical order. All right. Uh, summary. These are actionable medical orders that have to be honored at any point of contact. Ambulance drivers are supposed to look at the refrigerator or the EMS crew. As crazy as it sounds, you're supposed to go into the house and look at the refrigerator to see if the green form is hanging there. That's the New Jersey instruction. Hang this on your refrigerator, right? It's quite a talking piece. First of all, my wife doesn't let us hang anything on the refrigerator, so I can't imagine we'd have a, a green pulse hanging there. Uh, uh, so we need a better system for that. Um, it's going to be honored by EMS. The ER docs and staff all know about the green pulse forms, and certainly all the hospital nurses know about it. It's portable. Any location, it goes with the patient from location to location. Uh, it does not require a loss of decision-making capacity. Patients come in with a pulse. They could change their mind. They could change the orders. And again, their surrogate can change the orders. It's legally recognized as a medical order, the same way you would write an order in the patient's chart and they're green colored and easily recognized. All right, so we did an in-service or in-services with our, I have a great uh, two nurse practitioner palliative care team, and they are all about education. So when I say we, I mean my team. We in-service the uh, emergency department about what to do, what, what reflexes should trigger when a patient presents that has a pulse form. So they've actually started asking about the existence of a pulse form. And if it happens, it's almost like one of these, you know, if you've ever been in the, in the, in the ER or the hospitals lately, there's a stroke team. Stroke alert, stroke alert, you know, you hear it overhead and it mobilizes this, this force of, uh, you know, a team that, that, that uh, treats the stroke patients. Everybody as part of the patient's care team gets to know that this pulse form is in place, especially for the sicker patients. So they know what to do and what not to do in the case of an emergency. Uh, so the entire team is notified uh, about all of the orders contained uh, within the pulse, and then they write about it in their notes, communicate it to the physician, and it gets entered into the EMR system so that anybody that goes in to see orders, meds, fluids, this and that, you know, there's usually a DNR section that says, pulsed form says X, Y, and Z. So the, yeah, sure, yeah. You, so if you know about the orders and you disobey them, I assume it's the same liability as disobeying any other, any other order. If you don't know about them, it's all part of goodwill and trying to do your best. I can't imagine there being that much liability uh, with, with this, right? So it's all about, it, it holds the same weight as any other order in the chart would. Now, having been on the stand a few times, uh, Dr. Gooden, didn't you see the order for dilaudid four milligrams that killed the patient or something like that? <laughs> you know, like, uh, so if you know if the order's there, it should be it should be uh, should be honored. Uh, 
Uh, and if you deviate here from the pulse, you need to document the reasons that you did. Uh, you know, it says do not intubate, but I thought the patient might get over their pneumonia if I put on BiPAP for two days or something like that. It says no artificial air, you know, uh, airway management, but in my best medical opinion, I thought this was a you know resolvable event, and and that's why. So, and I don't think anybody would uh, would argue that. Uh, keep the pulse in the medical records, return the original one uh, to the patients. Uh, document it in your notes. Uh, it's a legal and actionable medical order, blah, 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 blah. Um, in the absence of other orders, pulse and DNR are in effect. Make a copy. I just put this in a lot, a lot of logistical stuff. Um, all about what to do with, oh, so, so this is inpatients with pulse. So, so different from the ER, now when the patient comes inpatient, Almost the same thing happens. Their pulse form is copied. It goes in the chart. Everybody gets to see it. We even ask that the copy be put on green paper and we write copy on it. We want people to see that green colored form and, and get used to it as being the, uh, uh, being the pulse. Uh, we have residents in the hospital, so we make sure that uh, the teaching staff is all aware about the, uh, uh, what's contained in the, uh, in the, in the pulse form. Anybody in a hospital setting still have DNR forms? We still have them, believe it or not. Whenever there's a code, the first thing we do is run and grab the chart, open the front cover to see if that blue DNR form uh, is there. So even though we have electronic orders, we still have paper, uh, paper DNR form. The most recent copy of the post obviously is what's to go home or to the nursing home with the patient. Uh, any section is avoided, physician puts a line through it uh, and, and, uh, and signs it. Uh, communicate the post to EMS personnel on, uh, on discharge. All right, anybody else in a state that's requiring them to do CME credits on end-of-life care? I remember when I first came to New Jersey, we, I had to do credits on HIV and abuse. Now they're requiring, there's like a 40 or 50 credit uh, requirement in, in uh, New Jersey, or 40 credit requirement. Uh, two of them have to be in uh, topics related to end-of-life care, so there's no shortage of CME programs about this and other end-of-life uh, topics uh, online. Um, uh, New Jersey Health Association has mo much of the information in here about this. You guys have access to the slides. I know we're being audio recorded in the back. And clearly, if you go to Google or, or Yahoo or Bing and type in Pulsed or Molst or Most or physician orders for uh, or practitioner orders for life-sustaining treatment, you'll find thousands, if not millions, of references to uh, to post around the country. All right, uh, I thought I'd put in a little uh, pointer slide about what could you do when you leave here? How can you help your institutions? If you're seeing patients face-to-face, -face, the, the, the biggest strides that I've made, I keep a stack of the green pulse forms in my exam room, and as I'm talking to patients and you know, eyes wandering the room, I see the green form, I pick it up. Have we talked about this? Yes, doc, yes, we've talked about it. No, we haven't talked about it. Great. I want to tell you about this, right? You have decision-making capacity now. Unfortunately, many people, when their end of life comes, don't get to make their own decisions. This green form is going to allow you to make your own decisions, right? When you hear it in that tone, it's like, sure, who, who wouldn't want to do it? So I've made a lot of strides face-to-face -face with patients, but we've set up cafeteria tables. I've done medical and surgical and, and uh, grand rounds for the, for the residents. You can attend local senior events. We're invited to all the time. 
I got to speak at our medical staff meeting when Pulse was first enacted, so I showed all the docs the green form, followed up by a blast email with what the green form looks like, recommended that they do it in their offices. And I'll tell you, <clears throat> the, the, the two uh, most fruitful things we've done so far is our nurse practitioners put together a book club. And they wanted to get the Pulse form out to kind of to the wider scope of the medical staff. So they hosted a medical staff book club. And I'm thinking to myself, these guys are crazy if they think anybody's going to come. They ordered all this food, right? I'm thinking, all right, so we'll go and uh, we'll sit and we'll, we'll chat amongst ourselves. We probably had 50, 60 people come. Now, they announced this, you know, a month or two in advance. And we did, we've done two books so far. The first one we did was Atul Gawande's Being Mortal, which if you're in healthcare and you haven't read, God's honest truth, I just got tingles and goosebumps go just thinking about reading the book. Isn't that incredible? Right? It's just amazing. I'll give you a total aside, but kind of related to this meeting. When I worked in the drug, in the drug abuse clinic, uh, I was a resident. It was moonlighting at the time. And I had no idea what drugs were. I, mean, I went to college and you saw a little of this and a little of that. But like heroin, crack, and those kind of things, I had no ideas. And goosebumps and tingles and hair standing on edge, like so many addicts would say, Doc, you have no idea what this does to the body. Just opening the packet, a couple of people told me they had to do it in the bathroom, sitting on the toilet, because they had such an outpouring, like an autonomic response in anticipation. Right? Just to show you how powerful the brain is, I mentioned the tool Gawande, and I got, I got goosebumps going down my arm. Just, he's a Boston, Harvard uh, guy who writes about what end of life is like, a little bit funny, a little bit sad, you know, it's one of, these, one of these great books. If you haven't read it, totally, totally recommend it. And people came out in droves to talk about their thoughts about some of the things that he talked about in the book. The last one we, uh, we read together was When Breath Becomes Air. Uh, it's about a physician who himself gets sick and is ensconced in the medical, uh, in the medical system. Also sad but true when you see what people are meant to go through and what it's like to have to wait to hear from your doctor about life, you know, altering diagnoses and things like that. Uh, really recommend both of them, but uh, the bottom one is, I think, a bestseller, uh, bestseller for sure. Uh, so your self-assessment questions. True or false? Pulsed is a legal document held by New Jersey state law. What do you think? True. Sorry, I went backwards. All right, the pulse form includes which of the following? Goals of treatment, preferences related to CPR, intubation and respiration, preferences for artificial nutrition and hydration, or all of the above? All of the above, good. I made these pretty easy. Upon awareness of a pulse form for a hospitalized patient, we should notify the attendings, copy the pulse, put it on the chart, enter it as an order into the electronic medical record, if available, and return the original to the patient. What do you think? All of the above. All right, true or false? With a couple extra spaces in here. Pulse should be initiated by a physician or uh, APN when the person is diagnosed with advanced disease or frailty. So a little bit tricky. That's in the formal definition of pulse. That's when they say to do it. But I've been incorporating this. That's where I blur the lines a little bit. Almost a little bit more like an advanced directive at a younger age, but they say the, in the formal definition of pulse that should be done with advanced disease or uh, frailty. So uh, thank you guys. I left my email uh, up above. I'll uh, open the floor for questions. Please. Uh, more common, I think, in Washington, 
Oh, yeah. <clears throat> Anybody know physician's assistants allowed to sign the pulse form? I would think so. There are clinicians licensed in states... Uh, So that's uh, where the blur comes in. The pulse does not supersede the advanced directives. What we hope is that um, physicians or family members or patients will align their ideas and their wishes so that both documents say the same thing. If there's a controversy between the pulse and the advanced directive, we ask the patient or their surrogate, right, which is it that they want, and we help them clarify that. But that happens. You make an advanced directive when you're 50, it says, I want everything done. You make a pulse when you're 80 that says, look, I don't want mechanical intubation or ventilation. What happens there? And, and that's why the system's not foolproof yet. We still run into controversy. And the, you know, when, the, when the son or daughter or other decision maker gets a hold of it, one of two things happens. Keep mom alive forever like she wanted, or no, we don't want any of that stuff. Mom's got a big, big trust and a state we're waiting to get. You know, let's, uh, let's give mom a comfortable end of life this week if we can, you know, one of those kinds. Yeah, please. I tell you, I don't, I don't know. It's a great point. Anybody know the new California law allowing physicians to prescribe end-of-life medications? Uh, uh, you know, hopefully if everybody's minds are in the right place, there won't be any controversy, but uh, I don't know. And, and maybe California should revise the form saying, you know, uh, if the time comes that I need to be kept comfortable, I'll allow my physician to give me medicine. It sounds like it might be a complementary thing. Yeah. They're not calling it physician-assisted suicide. I'm sure they're calling it uh, end-of-life uh, analgesia or symptom management or, uh, or whatever. Uh, anybody else do any program like this in their facility? It's in the works. There are some states that do. Is anybody from New York here? I think New York, does New York have a database of, of Pulse or most any idea? I think, yeah, there was one, because I looked up to see if we can copy anybody's and I thought it might have been New York, so I can't remember who had it. Um, does Massachusetts have electronic database? No. No, that's why it just makes no sense we're living 100 years ago. It's a green paper you hang on your refrigerator. I mean, we all have smartphones and we gotta, we gotta get with the times, uh, for sure. Yeah, yeah, emulsed, right. I, yeah. Right. 
And then, you know, again, to have these things state-specific, I mean, think about it. You know, we have snowbirds who go state to state, and, you know, people move and travel. You know, we should, should have a universal national form. Question in the back. In our hospital, hasn't made a, a bit of difference. Uh, you know, I've been there almost 20 years, and I know we've been through two or three rounds of controversy about what to do in that exact setting. You bring a critically ill patient to the uh, operating room, and they have a do not resuscitate, but by nature, they're critically ill, and that's what we do. We resuscitate for the couple hours that the surgeon is bloodletting and doing whatever they're, you know, whatever they're doing. Um, so I think what what we've done is something very similar to yours. We rescind that DNR. We discuss it with the family or the patient before we go in. Like, look, you're coming for surgery. Our job as anesthesiologists is to resuscitate you, right? We're going to keep you alive until the end of surgery and you're in recovery in ICU. And then after that, we'll reenact your form and we decide what to do from there. Same, same. Other questions or comments? Please. So I think a lot of this debate is political. Anybody do home visits by any chance? I do a couple a year, usually for the terminal patients that can't make it to the office. And when I go to people's houses, I am amazed. Well, I don't know which one to tell you first. So uh, the neighbors and the postman and the kids and the kids' friends are all in the house and everybody's there to visit. It's a big, loving, nice communal kind of, you know. Next to the bedside is a jug of hydromorphone tablets. In the refrigerator is a bottle of liquid Roxanol. Uh, next to it is a bottle of liquid Valium or, or Ativan. Uh, next to the bedside is a bottle of Percocet that they've been using from before. I mean, like the house is full of controlled substances. And, and I said for years, being a palliative care physician, we can't just think about opioid safe use for our non-cancer and non-terminal patients. We have to think about it in that setting as well. Think about the diversion potential that's there or the accidental exposure potential that's uh, uh, that's there. But when I hear about should clinicians be giving these end-of-life medications, I think to myself, what terminally ill patient doesn't have the medications at their fingertips already? Right? If you're a cancer pain, if you're a cancer patient, you probably have pain. 65, 66% of advanced cancer patients have severe pain. They probably have the meds at home. I think the, the politics come in of, hey doc, I want to end my life. How do I do it? And the doctor says, okay, here's your recipe. Here's what I want you to do. Here's the prescriptions to do that. I want you to take 100 milligram, 100 microgram fentanyl patch. I want you to put one on each shoulder. I want you to take uh, six milligrams of Ativan, drink that, and then here's a couple of potassium pills. I don't know how they would do it, but you know, just to, I think that's where the politi politics come in because some are expecting physicians to write the orders for the recipe for death. Um, 
I would think that at this point, most patients would, would know how to do it. Well, I guess they don't because it's still a big political issue, but I think a lot of it comes down to the politics of putting that burden on the physician. So here's what I say. Practice good medicine, good pain management, good anxiolysis, and warn your patients that combining these medicines could lead to an end of life. And, and I think I would approach it from a keeping your nose clean, you know, rather than making the newspapers for, for uh, physician-assisted suicide. They can opt out of the program. Yeah. Is it the only state now, or did Utah have something similar? Uh, I'm not sure. Any other questions or comments? Before you go, any ideas for talks for next year? Keep some things along the palliative care hospice end of life, uh, uh, or keep it away from the pain meeting? Keep it? Keep it in? Thank you, guys. Have a great pain week. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Thank you.